You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network, powered by Interstate Batteries. From your truck to your trail camera, Interstate Batteries has you covered. Visit your local Interstate Battery store today or online at interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. Welcome to the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast, brought to you by Exodus Trail Cameras, the number one podcast for bow hunting product information and hunting stories from across the nation. And now, here's your nine-fingered host, Dan Johnson. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another week of the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast brought to you by Exodus Trail Cameras. Visit exodusoutdoorgear.com and you can take advantage of the nine finger discount you can save twenty dollars on your trail camera purchase by entering the discount code nine fingers that's the number nine followed by the word fingers save 20 bucks now today we have an absolutely kick-ass podcast uh scouting trail camera strategy public land Today, we're talking about all that stuff, and my guest is Josh Prophet. And uh, Josh, man, is going to talk about how he rolls when it comes to hunting public ground, scouting public ground, how he uses trail cameras, and a little bit of everything. This podcast is going to be a per- perfect if you are the type of guy who is 100% public ground, just like Josh is. Uh, just another kick-ass podcast, another great story of someone who goes out, gets it done on public ground, and uh, they're not any big-timer, right? They're not some big-time star. They're not, uh, they don't hunt over large food plots, or they don't you know, hunt on huge leases or private farms, whatever. Average Joe's, man. Uh, getting it done and that's why i love talking to guys like josh Uh, that's what today's podcast is about i hope you enjoy it but if you haven't had the opportunity to go check out ozonicshunting.com and check out the ozonics and check out all of the uh, products that they offer um, please do so Uh, they have they have two units um, one that might be designed for someone who hunts a lot in a ground blind another from the tree stand the hr 300 that's what i use um, and i've been a huge advocate of ozonics ever since uh, the business started pretty much and i have seen the results and that's something that you just have to see the results man and and once you do i I'll, i'm pretty confident that you'll be a believer in the product now 
the offer Ozonics is offering, the offer that Ozonics is offering this year is, so you go buy a, a unit, let's say an HR300, right? You also add the closet, or not the closet, but the, the dry wash bag. Okay, the one that you can you hang your clothes in, you can run your Ozonics, and it kills all the the scent in your uh, in that bag and on your clothes. You add that to the cart, and then you enter the discount code Nine Fingers. That's the number nine, followed by the word fingers, and you will save on the dry wash bag. So the dry wash bag is free. So enter that discount code. You have to add both units to the cart. Okay. Uh, then you enter the code, and the code basically wipes out the cost of the dry wash bag. So that's, I think, a $200 savings. Uh, that's a pretty good deal. So take advantage of that. Also, I do a little housekeeping here up front and not so much to the tail end, but please go take advantage of the Quality Deer Management Association uh, one-year membership discount offered only on the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast, and that is the Discount code nine finger, just finger number nine, followed by the word finger, and a annual membership goes from thirty five dollars to twenty five dollars. So twenty five dollars gets you hooked up for uh, with one of the greatest whitetail organizations that there is. Period, hands down. They just had their convention, and I was actually named the QDMA communicator signpost communicator of the year uh, if you ask my wife I'm, I might not be that good at communicating but the quality deer management association thinks I am and I tell I'm telling you right now I am honored to uh, to to receive that award it it's a big deal I'm very proud of the work that's uh, kind of gone into that and uh, I think I think so far with that discount we've raised somewhere around 50 new members based off that and that's a big deal so uh thanks for taking advantage of it and thank you to the qdma for doing what it is that they do man and uh, spreading the good word but enough talking let's get into today's i guess it's like a public land hunter profile podcast with josh profit all right on the phone with me today mr josh profit how you doing man Man, I am great. Life's good for me, brother. Yeah, it sounds to me like your life and my life are kind of the same. We got a, a full-time job, we got a family, and we love to hunt. And, and I don't really think it needs to go any further than that, right? You nailed it, man. You, I mean, that's it. There you go. So, uh, you reached out to me, and you said, you know, hey, man, I, I hunt 100% public ground. I am now a traditional archer, so I have a whole bunch of questions for you about that. But before we get into that, why don't you tell me where you're from and what do you do for a living? Man, I'm from West Kentucky, and I actually sit right on the Ohio River. Pretty fortunate by that because I'm literally 10 minutes from Indiana and about 30 minutes from public ground in Indiana. Uh, so that makes me very fortunate for it to hunt to be able to hunt two states and uh just as kentucky is man i'm, I'm a coal miner <laughs> yeah blue collared coal miner gotcha gotcha so let me let me transition real quick because i don't hear a lot about the state of indiana 
uh, and maybe that's because I just haven't uh, read the right articles or I haven't um, talked to the right people, but I hear every once in a while somebody runs into a good chunk of land, whether it's private or public, in Indiana. So what's your take on Indiana? Oh, man, it's a sleeper state. and I only know that because uh, spotlighting is legal over there as long as you don't have a weapon yep. in the vehicle. Same as Iowa. And Boonerville, son, Boonerville. I mean, giant, giant deer. Um, just I put Indiana in there with any of the top states as far as Iowa, Kansas, Illinois, Kentucky. Um, I just think it's way overlooked out of the circle. Oh, that's good. That's good that I don't know about it, and you do know about <laughs> it, but now everybody's going to know about it. Uh, is that an yep. over-the-counter yep. state? Yes, it is. Um, I don't recall if they're raising their license fee or not but it's one of the cheaper states right around 200 dollars to get you in gotcha for a hunting license and deer tag okay so then it's not too far from where you live uh and you just hop the border and it's over the counter uh what's the public land scenario like over there is there a lot of it is it concentrated is it kind of spread out throughout the state um there's some smaller parcels that are here and there um and then you got the hoosier and it's i don't know how big it is i'm pretty i'm pretty sure it's over a hundred thousand acres it covers multiple counties and it's just um it's nasty and full of full of big deer <laughs> well that's good so and that's what we're going to talk about a little bit uh, today we're going to talk about some strategy uh how you go about working this public ground uh you know preseason during the season, postseason, all that good stuff, scouting, trail cameras. Um, but before we get into that, how did your uh, 2017 season go? Man, it went um, it went very, very good. Um, and a lot of that had to do with the positive attitude. Um, I made the switch in 2017 to, to go trad. Um, I shot, shot, shot all, all summer long, and I ended up killing my first deer. It was the first deer I shot at, and I killed it, and it was a doe. It's like October 28th, and man, that just that that busted and broke my confidence up, and, and brought it up, and brought it up, and so yeah, I ro- rode into November with my vacation, and um, it was about halfway through my vacation, I ended up making a move. I wasn't having very good luck with the deer I was trying to kill, man. I made a move, and it uh, it turned to be a right one. And I punched my second tag on about a 34 inch deer, uh, you know, free range public land. And give you a little insight. It was only 12 inches wide. It's just just a beautiful deer, mainframe eight pointer with split G twos, and I mean that was uh, <laughs> it was it was a sweet season. Probably my probably my best one yet. Right, man. I'm looking at a picture of it right now on Instagram, and uh, it is a tight rack deer. I tell you, I don't have many regrets when it comes to the hunting world but i will tell you this i (laughs) i passed a buck one time that was probably about 10 12 inches wide but i swear to god it went straight north i mean it it's its rack was straight (laughs) up and i bet you it was in you know the 135 140 class uh you know somewhere around there and i passed that buck and i just said the second it got out of range, I go, that was the dumbest thing I've ever done in a tree stand. 
<laughs> I can relate. Man, them tall rack deer are tough because normally their main beams are a little shorter. Yeah. And just kind of a yeah. general rule of thumb, if a, if an eight-pointer don't have like 22-inch main beams, it's hard for him to score Pope and Young. Yeah. And um, so that's kind of how I look at it. So they normally got shorter main beams, and then they lose the, the, the their width because they're just so tight. But, um, I mean – still it can be done you know my deer had 19 inch main beams and uh over six inch bases and still still scored right at 134 so yeah that's awesome that's awesome so let's see here what state when you start hunting uh okay wait a second i messed up because i don't want to talk about that yet we you you said you made the the switch to trad how difficult how difficult was that for you switching from compound to trad Oh man, I had a buddy tell me, see, nobody hardly shoots trad, you know, none of my friends shoot it. Nobody shoot it, shoots them around here, shoots trad. So, you know, I, I was just trying to make it a little harder on myself. And I, so when I, you know, had to search for advice, it was literally, um, people, you know, all around the, all around, the, you know, the United States. And, um, I really reached out to a guy by the name of Harmon Carson down in Louisiana and he just, he um, kind of gave me the, the wraparound. He said, man, I just want to let you know you're getting yourself in a big rabbit hole. And I was thinking, <laughs> man, what? How do you, no stra- you know, no cables, no sights, no cams, and I'm getting myself into a rabbit hole? Wow. Was, I just missed the, I missed the days of putting the sight on, putting the rest on, making sure it was fairly level, cutting the arrow to the end of the rest, and the bow shooting good. Yeah. It's totally it's not like that with a trad bow i mean it's just so so finicky to to get a good arrow flight and to get your confidence built up so it's just it was a major major change for me right so on a on a compound bow right if it's not shooting well you can tune the bow right even even people with bad form can shoot good if they're consistent with a compound gear so you know if the rest is off or if the sight's off, you can still be accurate at some point. So how much does the bow actually control archery when it comes to trad? Man, I think trad, I mean, obviously you need a good bow, but I think a lot of it is mental. Um, and a lot of it has to do with staying positive and, you know, looking at things like I can do this, you know, I, I can make this happen because it is just it's such a it's such a mind game because there's two ways to shoot a trad bow you can either gap shoot which is kind of where you aim with your arrow or you can shoot instinctive and that's what i do and so it's just it's a total mind game there's been times to where i go out there and i'll be shooting awesome i mean awesome and then the next day i can't shoot at all and so i just i know it's a mental thing so i just put the bow down and walk away from it right right so what's I don't even know what does a new trad bow cost? Man, it just all depends. Um, if you want to go with like a machine riser, like the Satori, the Hoyt's bow, I think it's around seven or eight hundred dollars. Um, I just actually had a custom uh, one piece uh, kind of hybrid bow. It's kind of like a long bow recurve mix, and uh, I got it for under seven hundred dollars. But it took about six months to get here. Gotcha. So it's, it was handmade then? Yep, handmade. I picked out the wood and everything. It's oh. it's beautiful, man. Not not you know, shipped down an assembly line. It's a 
got some soul behind it and a lot of purpose. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's cool, man. You know, um, I love my compound bow and someday, not now and probably not in the next five, five or 10 years, but someday I might be, uh, picking up a trad bow. Uh, don't know when I'm not, I'm not ready to give up my compound yet, but when you did, was there, I guess, what kind of feeling do you feel? Do you feel more like a badass now that you shoot trad? <laughs> Man, it's just, it's different. I don't really, I'm not really going to say I feel like a, a badass, but it just, it feels like it brings the woodsmanship out of you that, that I feel that so many people have lost in the industry in today's hunting world. It, you know, it actually, it brings out the, it brings out the hunter in you. Yeah. Um, because you, I have to babysit the bow. I can't dust the, dust the, uh, <clears throat> dust it off and go out and shoot it. Like I could the compound two or three times a year and be shooting nasty at the 60 yards. I got to shoot this thing every day. Yeah. Okay. So, do you ever see yourself going back to uh, a compound bow or are you trad for the rest of your life now? Oh, trad life for sure. <laughs> um, I, everybody asked me that. Okay. And this was, this was fuel for the fire. I had so many people like, dude, you're going to wound so many deer. You're going to do this. And I, and I know the time's coming. Um, I did it with a compound. Um, but when I shot that doe, when, when she come in, I, I already knew she was dead a hundred yards out. I mean, my confidence was just that high and, you know, I, I killed her and my, I was on high. I, I really, I mean this when I say it, that meant more to me than any 150 inch deer ever could have with a compound. It just did. Yeah. And when that, and when that buck come in and I seen that arrow hit him, he was quartering away and I seen the arrow zip through him and he ran 40 yards and fell down that big ridge. I mean, I might as well have shot a 250 inch deer. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome, man. I tell you, um, from a, from a story standpoint too, uh, you know, when I find out a guy shot, let's say like 150 inch buck or whatever, whatever, however big the buck is, he shot. And then if I see a picture and he has a trad bow or I hear uh, that he shot it with a trad bow for some reason, I don't know what it is. I, there's just a little bit more, you know, I'll give that guy a little bit more props than I would just like a regular compound archer. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, I mean, I totally agree. I totally agree. I'm right there with you. So, so let's talk about this public land because, you know, the it's it's becoming very popular right now. I mean, being a public land hunter, it, it's it's a very prideful thing. Uh, if you're successful and continuing like. Uh, continuously successful um, or consistently successful that's even better so you live in Kentucky and you also hunt Kentucky and you hunt Indiana so we'll start with whatever state takes priority what what state takes priority in your year Kentucky and that's you know because it's my home turf yeah um, and we got a velvet season our our season comes in first weekend in September, so I'm hitting it 28 days or 26 days before a lot of people are are even out. So it it trumps all. Right. Okay. So Kentucky. Now public land, and in the email you sent me, you, you mentioned large tracts of public land. So how big of uh, property are we talking about here? 
man, I always have a backup plan, like an A, B, and C. Um, number one being the, the main pri- the main piece of property that I hunt. Number two being a, a backup piece of property that I don't ever hardly hunt very much. And number three being Indiana, in case I tag out early and I can hunt over there. Right, right. So you put all your energy into Kentucky, uh, and you'll only go to Indiana if you tag out, or if it starts getting... Yep. Uh, let's say Kentucky sucks and it's real hot and well, cold front hits Indiana first or something like that. Are you ever going to jump up there? Or are you always going to hunt Kentucky till you tag out? I'm going to hunt Kentucky till I tag out because I'm so close that my, the WMAs I hunt are so close that it's the same weather, weather patterns. It's the same rut patterns. Everything's virtually the same. It's just across the river. Gotcha. Okay. So on the, on these, uh, on these chunks of private ground, how big are they? On public, yeah, on, on the public, yeah, on the public land that you hunt, because uh, you mentioned you, you know, you hunt big tracks. Right, right. Well, we can uh, we can kind of go into that a little bit if you want. Um, I like bigger tracks, and you know, I may hurt myself a little bit because um, some of these guys like the smaller tracks. And what I say by that is like a thousand acres or less or 500 acres. And, um, I like the bigger tracks because it gives you more room for air. It holds more hunting pressure. And normally depends on which, you know, forestry you're at, uh, you get a lot better variety of deer genetics and food sources. Okay. And you're saying that is on the smaller scale, you get better genetics and, and better food sources or the larger scale? On the larger scale. Okay. All right. On the larger scale. All right. Makes sense. So now with, you know, with this public land, you know, everybody, you can talk to your blue in the face and it always seems that the <laughs> deeper you go in, uh, the more successful that a guy can be, uh, cause he's got to get past all the pressure. Now, do you agree with a comment like that? Uh, no, 100%. No. Okay. Negative. And I had a feeling uh, about that because some of the best public land hunters, uh, uh, hunt smarter and not necessarily harder. And I, there's this one guy who I had on the podcast a while back and he says he hunts, he sets his trail cameras, like 50 yards in from a road on a main trail, uh, on a trail that he he just drives up and down. You'll see uh, a trail cut out of the timber and go through a ditch. You'll look at the other side of the road, and there's the trail going across. He'll go into the timber, and that's how he locates his bucks is is that method. Yep. So, so on these bigger chunks of property, the question that I always ask is, how do you narrow down thousands and thousands of acres into one season worth of tree stands? Okay. Well, I first, one of the main things I look at from an aerial perspective, say you've never hunted there or you don't know much about the property. I like to look at access. Where is everybody coming in and where is everybody going out? Because back in the day I used to, you need to go deep, Josh. You need to go deep. So here is here Josh is beating everybody else out there. You know, done walked a mile and a half in and I see a flashlight. I'm already fully set Yeah, I'm already fully set up and here comes Joe Snow down through here with his three hundred lumens flashlight that 
is making all kinds of noise. I'm like, dude, I don't spend an hour and a half walking back here in the dark. Got up at two in the morning. What happened? Yeah. Well, it's because I didn't. There was a, a guy on the other side of the property that was trying to do the same thing I was doing. And now here we are in the middle of nowhere sitting in each other's lap. Yeah. Yeah. So I like to look at access first. And then <clears throat> second thing I look for, I try to figure out what I think I can manage. Um, I'm real big on, I don't know where it, not go, not, not going beyond your means, like not stressing yourself out. Um, you know, not taking on too much property because you can. Um, so I, I normally pick out, say there's 10,000 acres. I'll pick out a chunk of property. that looks like it has great bedding, sloughs, hills, and the food. Because everybody knows it takes, you know, three things to, to make a big deer, age, genetics, and nutrition. So I, in this big piece of public, I'll look for something where I think the deer can get all of that. And then um, I'll start a grid pattern with, with my cameras. Um, I'll start locating the food sources. I'll start locating the bedding. And then um, I'll put the cameras out and just start connecting the dots. Gotcha. So let's, uh, let's back up a step. And, and you talked about access. Let's talk specifics here. What are you looking for specifically when it comes to access? Obviously, the the less the less access, the better. Um, now a lot of these properties have multiple accesses from northeast, south, and west, and so you want the view as possible. I mean, you just do because that puts everybody coming and going out of one spot versus five or six or eight or 10. And then another big thing I look at when I find access, I like, I like to look at terrain because the secret's out. When I hear somebody say, Oh, I need to go deep or I go deep. I'm just like, man, you haven't been in the game very long. That's how I feel. Yeah. Um, one thing that on public land that, that deters hunters more than anybody is terrain features, hills, bluffs, waters. And I'm sure, I'm sure you've heard this, anything that makes it really, really hard to get to, really knocks them out huge hills man people just don't like to to go up five or six ridges that are huge even because you know you may only have a half a mile walk in but when you're going straight up and straight down your half a mile walk gonna turn to three yeah absolutely absolutely so you're looking for property uh pieces of property that have hard access and difficult terrain features now by you saying that does that translate into what you're looking for with older age class, better genetics, and uh, better nutrition? I normally find you find the older deer there. Okay. For sure, because the people just, they're a lot harder to kill, you know. You got one guy that may be hunting on the side of the swamp, and the deer's only 70 yards away on the other side, but you don't never know it. Or you're hunting you're hunting bluff country or a big ridge, and you're on one side, and the big buck's on the other side, and you never know it, and he's only 100 yards away. So I, I do feel like you get some older class deer in there. But if you can mix a little bit of limited access in there with, with some food sources, whether it's, um, you know, they just come in and the, they lease the, the crop rights out to a farmer or the state actually does food plots, that's, that's what I like because deer are slaves to their stomach. I don't care if it's if it's public land or property they are slave to their stomachs and they may not come there in the daylight but they'll be there in the dark 
and I've hunted multiple, multiple public grounds that I know without a doubt pull deer off the private ground to the public because just because they got the food and they got the variety. Yeah. Okay. So about this access, right? I think one thing that we forgot here, especially on the uh, pieces of property that you hunt, why don't you walk us through what this public ground looks like, the terrain features, the water uh, situation, all that stuff. Okay, I like, I personally like hill country. I'm not a very good flatland hunter. Um, I can do it, but when you got terrain, you can almost, you know, look from an aerial perspective and kind of guess where the deer are going to go. And then there's no substitute for boots on the ground. So, you you know, you pick it out from above and then you go in with your feet and you, and you see, you know, if what you've been looking at is really true. Yeah. So I like, I personally like the hill ground. Okay. Do you, do you feel that that holds more deer or that is where the deer are coming to feed or what's the reason why you like hill ground so much? I think it's easier to kill the deer. Okay. Um, you can, I mean, you know, like I said, you can predict from above where they're going to be at. You go in and either A, it's just like you thought it was going to be, or B, it's not. And you mark it off the list and you go on to the other one. And, you know, I specifically like hill ground that's, that's thick um, because if, if a rabbit likes it on public land, if a rabbit likes it, a deer loves it. Yeah. Because number one, you know, you, nobody goes in the in the thickets. Everybody sits when they're bow hunting in today's world. I see it over and over, public, private land. It don't matter. So many hunters set themselves up to to see deer and not to kill deer. Okay. And when you go into places like that, you you've heard. You know, I know you've done infall. You may not see very many deer, but you may see that deer. Right. And that and and you got to figure out what your goal is. Do you want to go in there and have fun and see see a bunch of deer? Or do you want to go knock down, you know, Mac Nasty? Yeah. And that's one thing that I learned over the years is there would be days where um, I would go hunting and I didn't see any deer. And I, I'd get pissed. I'd be like, man, I didn't see a deer. I was mad, you know, or whatever. And as I got older and I started understanding more uh, that, you know, if I didn't see five does, it's not a big deal because I'm not going to kill five does, you know, unless it's potentially the rut. And if there's no does, obviously, there's not going to be that many bucks. However, if I sit, you know, for six hours, seven hours, and uh, all I see is one buck, whether I have a shot at him or I know where I need to adjust to go try to intercept him, that's okay with me, man. I agree. I, I, I agree. You know, like I said, that has to that has to just go back to, you know, what you want and staying, you know, with a positive attitude. Because, it, man, it's hard sometimes sitting in these thickets when literally you can't see anything. And, you know, it's hard hearing because it's so it's so dense. And, you know, you sit there and you think, man, I wish I was on that big, open, pretty ridge. But in all reality, you know, you're right where you need to be. You just need to stay positive and, and wait it out. Yeah, that's right. Okay, so you you use maps to look for hard you know hard to reach spots, hard access spot, hard to access spots. Then when you actually find a piece of place or a, a piece of property that you want to go inspect and do your scouting on, what's your scouting look like? 
man, my scouting looks like I, I pretty much dive into a place, you know, I'll pick out areas where I think they are. And then I'll be like, okay, you know, I'll, I'll pick out places where transition areas, bedding areas where I think they feed. And, um, I'll pretty much, what I'll do is I'll work my way backwards. I'll start out in the food source, say there's some standing beans or there's some clover. Um, I'll put a camera on it. Even though it's public, I'll put a camera on it. And then you're going to get an inventory of what's on there. It may be nighttime or it may be daytime, depends on where you are. And then that kind of confirms like, oh, yeah, I, I, I found the food source because it takes two things to kill a deer, really three things. But if you know where a buck beds and you know where he feeds and the big gifter, and if you have the time to kill him, there's no reason why you shouldn't. Okay. So I start backwards. I yep. look at, I look, start at the food, put a camera out. If the deer's there, if there's heavy browse pressure, I'll start going in. I'll start looking for trails. I'll get back to my maps okay, where's this deer bed, bedding? This point looks good, or this thicket looks good. And um, I'll just follow it back. And I, when I get close to where I think they're bedding, depending on if it's in or out of season, if it's out of season, if it's shed season, or, you know, early spring, I, I'll dive straight in. But if it's close to season, with a good wind, I'll get as close as I can, or that I think I can, and I'll put out a camera. And then so, you know, I, I'll wait a while, and then you check that camera, you find out if uh, what you was thinking is true. You know, you either got him or you don't on his food and on his bed. Yeah. So how long do you let cameras soak before you go and check them? <laughs> Everybody asks me that. Man, there's some cameras I don't even check, but like once a season. Yeah. Um, minimum, I can check them. And this is minimum and very, very, very few times do I get to check them every two weeks. Um, most of mine set four to six weeks before I check them, if not longer. And when are you? I, I pretty much I hear you. go when ahead. Are you, when are you putting them out? Um, I started putting mine out May in May. I have 12 cameras out now. Um, and I still have a whole tote full of cameras. So I start now and my guess is they won't all be out till about October. And how many trail cameras do you typically run? Um, I run over 30, but with a couple buddies I hunt with, we, we run on deer lab and we kind of, kind of hunt as a group. We run right around 70. That's a lot of Intel, man. That's a lot of work. Yeah. I hear that. <laughs> I hear that, man. I, uh, I don't have 70 trail cameras, but I can tell you that the ones that I do have, man, I have to scrap to go, to go find time to check them. Yep, and that's hey, that's a good thing because I'm gonna tell you something about a trail camera. I don't care if it's a cell camera, I don't care if it's a film camera, I don't care if it's a digital camera. It's all past tense. It's all it's yeah. all in the past. Right, right. So when let's just say I'm gonna give you a hypothetical uh, scenario here. You go and you check a, a trail camera. Let's say it's during the season, and a buck shows up that you want to shoot. You want to try to kill. But the picture was taken maybe like three days earlier from when you uh, when you checked it. How much, I guess, how much uh, weight are you giving that data? I normally have so much more than just that. Um, 
you know, normally I already have a pretty good idea on where he's bedding and almost 100% sure on where he's feeding. And just depends on all what time of the year it is. You know, if it's September, October, he's he's not far, so I'm putting pretty heavy pressure on it, whether it's daytime or nighttime, whether it's 8 in the morning or 8 at night. Right. Um, if it's If it's November, it's hard to say because – you know, I, when you run truck cameras over thousands of acres, you start to realize how big and how far some of these deer's home ranges and how and how far that they really do move. Yeah, yeah. So are you catching the same deer on multiple trail cameras? Man, yeah. I rarely even from, from July to January hardly ever have any new deer show up. Okay. So you, just we cover such a yeah, I got gotcha. you. You know we cover such a a, a big area in a few, in the rut we do have a few, but what normally happens is the the deer that we were having they start showing up on cameras a mile away. Okay, and then that's it. And then you just kind of follow, do you follow that buck uh, based off where the trail cameras are hitting, or are you kind of always hunting what you suspect to be their core area? Man, I, I base a lot of my stuff off Deer Lab, um, yeah. and that keeps me pretty honed in. And a lot of people may not be hip to that, but, I mean, it's just, it's a great tool, especially if you don't have much time to hunt. Yeah. So um, weather has so much to do, to do with the way that they move. Yeah. Well, and it's – and, you know, not to sit here and whore out on Deer Lab, but it is, it's one of my, you know, partners of this podcast. And what I like about it, is so i don't know about you or how you track your deer but i i track them by let's say a name that i give them but i also track them by shooter right so i have all these deer that i consider shooters and then i use that data to find out from a statistic standpoint what tree stand on the farm i should hunt to run into a shooter caliber buck and I tell, I'm telling you right now that this past season, um, no, this, no, not this past season, but the season before when I was using it, and I entered in all my uh, trail camera pictures. Sure enough, every time that I would go sit a stand based off the decision I or based off a decision I made from Deer Lab data, I ran into a mature buck. Now it wasn't under my stand or within shooting, but it was in the area. So that tells me that these mature bucks are using these areas on certain winds, certain times of year, and that data is is priceless. Yeah, man, it really it really is. And I had a buddy that that's that runs a bunch of trail cameras with me. He's, he's almost like my brother. And, and uh, you know, our subscription to Deer Lab is, is this month, and it was time for us to pay, and, and he opted out on it. And, I, and his main reason, it wasn't the money, it was, it was the time. And he's like, it takes me so long to upload these pictures. And it does me too. And I have limited time, but I'll get up early to do it. I'll get up at 4 a.m. and do my Deer Lab work before the kids wake up or the wife wakes up just because – I'm willing to put in the work. I'm willing to go the extra mile and I can, and I know the difference that it'll make. Yeah, absolutely, man. Absolutely. So 
when I guess what's your trail camera strategy? I mean, do you? I mean, with seventy trail cameras, you could obviously obviously go in and cover a large area. But are your tr- trail cameras only on food sources, or are they on like pinch points and travel corridors, staging areas, bedding areas too? All of the above. It's we do it pretty strategically. Um, basically, like I said, you know, we'll find an area that we like that has bed, food, and cover, and we'll grid it in. You know, we got seventy cameras over three or four thousand acres. We'll start looking for the bedding. We'll start looking for the food. We'll look for the transition areas. We'll look for the staging areas. And you know, a lot of people may not be familiar with Deer Lab, but um, just a quick insight on it. Um, Deer Lab works off off past histories, and if you put a camera out and you keep moving the camera, the deer the pro the the program's not going to be able to work. So the camera almost needs to sit there, and you can tell me if you agree or disagree. Most of the season to really get the most out of the program, correct? Well, yeah. Or you can uh, change, like if you put turn your, on or off the camera. Well, you you put your if you put your trail camera in a different location, you just have to mark that location in on the map. So uh, right, right, yeah, yeah. Yep. But yeah, I get what you're so saying. Ba- basically, all of our cameras sit on the same trees every year, and then we'll have a few satellite cameras that really don't hit Deer Lab unless it's just you know. Bu- just awesome information that we'll bounce around on sign that is fresh that we think we need to put a camera on or whatnot. But all of our cameras go within a hundred yards of where they were the previous year for the most part. And you would be really surprised because a lot of people, they'll put a camera out for a month and it may not have anything and they'll move it. But what you don't realize is you had it there the wrong month. And the next month was just crazy sign. It either may die off or it may stay that way um, the rest of the year. Um, one thing with running, running a bunch of trail cameras is the particular WMA I hunt, I would almost pick the, the first week of December over any day in November. Really? Oh, yeah. That's when the big boy, the, the, the big racks and the big age classes, that's when they hit the cameras in daylight. Yeah. So they've started, uh, they've found the does, they've bred them, and now they're looking for those next, that next set of does or the, or the last doe to, to breed. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's like they, they've been around long enough. So they know, they know what's going to, they know what happened. They know what's going to happen. And they know that there's, you know, a limited few that haven't been bred. I think they come in around every 30 days, something or 28 days, something like that. And so them big deer that's been around through some seasons, and they will get up, and they will get get to do some walking in December, bud. In the and in the morning, in midday, and in the evening. And if anybody was to argue with me, I got nine hundred pictures on my computer <laughs> to prove them wrong. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I just, I really do. I really do. All right. So you got your access. All right, you're you're getting your intel based off of uh, uh, trail camera, you know, trail cameras. So now it's decision time, right? You're you're obviously making your decision based off of trail camera photos, right? Is that how a majority of your decisions are made? It really is. Um, some people say, 
well, you're cheating because you use so many trail cameras and you're taking away from woodsmanship because you're using so many trail cameras. And my response to them is, well, I still had to scout it. I still had to put the cameras out and I still have to check them. I can only hunt four days a month. So I do honestly rely heavily on my trail cameras. And so, yeah, a lot of the way I hunt goes into what my trail cameras are telling me. Yeah. And that's, and that's crazy that someone thinks that, right? Uh, a trail camera may put, may locate a deer and, you know, let you know that a, a shooter buck is in a particular area. But you, like you said, just to elaborate, you still got to set the tree stand up. You still have to <laughs> put yourself within however many yards of it. And then you still have to shoot it with a trad bow. So uh, that person, brother, <laughs> that, that trail camera don't put an arrow through him and drag him back to the truck. Okay, absolutely. <laughs> Bottom line, <laughs> that's funny. All right, so how, how do you know when it's time to go in? Daylight. I go off daylight pictures or close to daylight. Um, and one thing I've learned, man, even with running a lot of cameras, is they can still skirt them. Yeah, You know, I don't know how they do it, um, but they can. They can still skirt some cameras, even when you're running 70 of them. Um, if I got a bunch of pictures of, of a buck in the daylight, whether, you know, it may be the morning or the evening, or or say I, say I know where he's bedding, okay? I know where he's bedding, and he's passing this camera that's 300 yards from his bedding area. You're right at gray light almost at shooting light he's 300 yards from his from his bedding well now that i know that he's passing that camera because i did my homework on where the deer beds or or the real close general area to where he thinks he needs to bed i need to tuck as close as i can to that bedding area because that's going to allow me another five or ten minutes which is is legal shooting light right okay so daylight pictures is kind of a trigger for you when what time of year do those daylight uh pictures start happening if you're doing there's there's no in my opinion there's no such thing as a nocturnal deer i struggle in october i'll be the first to tell you yeah. i have a very hard time in october um but in my opinion, there's no such thing as a nocturnal deer. He's going to at least stand up and move around and browse around a little bit to, close to his bed, I think. So, yeah, I agree. All season long, all season long, man. As long as it's as long as it's daylight or close to or close to daylight, I don't care if it's September, October, November, December, January. Any of those times are good for me, right? Because they move all the time. I, I got thousands of pictures saved, thousands of daylight pictures saved from June to January where they move in the daylight, whether it be early morning, late afternoon, or the middle of the day. Yeah. So then, you know, once, uh, you know, once you get that trigger, you get that one trail camera photo of a shooter buck in daylight, uh, in, in a particular area, are you going back to historically or historically good tree stand locations or is it more of a run and gun, whatever feels right at the time? What time of year are we talking? Uh, I don't know, man. What, whatever your strategy is when you, when you get that daylight picture. 
if if it's early season, if it's outside the Vegas luck, aka November or or early December, you, you got to be the bed close to the bedding is your best bet. I haven't killed a lot of deer that way, but I'm smart. If I had more time, I think I would have better luck, but I just don't have the time. Um, getting close to the deer's bed is the best way of killing him. I don't care what time of year it is, because a lot of times they can feed, you know, multiple places, acorns, two or three different fields. But a lot of these deer, you know, they do have multiple beds, but I, I think that a lot of them bed in the general same area, especially if you got a thicket. And this all goes back to wind, but if you got a thicket, say you got a two acre thicket in the middle of the hardwoods that nobody can get into and you want to go hunt in there on the ground, that deer may have two or three different beds in there just for different winds. And so you know where he's going to be, whether it's September or, or January. Right. Okay. So once you, once you, you know, locate him and you get in there and you start hunting him, how much time do you give a property, a piece of, you know, an area until it's time to go somewhere else and do something else? Till my camera stopped taking pictures of him. Okay. Um, I can only, I can only hunt every other weekend, four days a month. That's it. And so basically on my every other weekend i i don't care what time of year it is i'll normally do a short hunt in the morning just because i'm a firm believer in that if i got two days to hunt i probably need to scout one of them i don't care how many cameras i got and that's and that's i'll get down i'm sorry but that's because of your job and your family is the because you're limited to four you don't take like a week vacation or anything like that I, I do take a week vacation. I do have a uh, I do have a week off in November, and I do have a week off in December. Okay, um, gotcha. But I, every other weekend is a family weekend for me. I think that just touch on this real quick. I, it's sad. I think that a lot of people don't have their priorities right, mm-hmm. and the day that hunting becomes before your family is a bad day, and you need a reality check. Yep, I agree. Hundred percent, and that's part of the reason why my uh, my October's are not what they used to be. I, 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 dude, I'm the first one. I'll admit this. I love hunting early October. It's just more comfortable, right? I mean, it's just the it's beautiful out. It's not like it's not like the rut. When it's you think, enjoyable. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> then it, then it, then November hits. It starts getting really cold, and if there's a, a, like a deep a deep freeze that hits it's more of that uh it's more punishing fun than it is like kicking your feet up in a tree stand relaxing warm suns hitting you in october and all that stuff and but you know i can't burn out my wife before the rut my rut vacation hits you know what i mean that's right you you're banking your hours yep. see you're learning I know. <laughs> you're, I know. you're you're banking your hours. And, man, I will say this. There is something about October. Even when the deer slow down, it's like the leaves are changing and, and everything just kind of slows down and stands still. And if you can really appreciate it, it's just a beautiful time to be in the woods. And I always feel like, man, the leaves are changing and I'm changing and I'm just getting into this straight beast bleed mode in that time. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So once the once the trail camera pictures dry up of this buck, 
you're you're splitting but how often are you checking those trail cameras when you're going in to hunt is that like every every time you go into that property you're hunting him until uh you know until he, he doesn't show up and you're checking the trail cameras every time or are you just kind of you're guessing I don't ever really guess because I normally have a pretty good idea and that's only because of the cameras and I've only hunted one specific deer in my whole life. And that was last year. And I knew right, right when he was gone, I knew it just because his home core range was small. I'd had pictures of him for two years. Um, I had seen him a couple of different times in person and I just, I knew, I knew he was dead to be honest with you. Right. And that, was later confirmed but um what was your question again i'm sorry no just just about you know are you checking your trail cameras every day when you go okay. into a, one of those sets to make sure he's still there before you bounce i i every time i go i check cameras because it, it's every two weeks gotcha um you know every every other weekend so i'll, I'll check some but a lot of times you know cameras over thousands of acres i obviously i can't check them all so i go to where the highest percentage of bucks are you know like one camera may have five shooters on it another you know or five cameras may have five shooters on it in a pretty small area four or five hundred acres and then what to the west five cameras only have one shooter on it so obviously i'm gonna stack my odds and go to where the deer are right and um that's where i'm gonna be at okay so you kind of you bounce around until you locate something then when you locate something you go in on it and if it if it ends up not paying off then you split and you you start that cycle all over again checking trail cameras locating one bouncing in going after it okay it dried up check trail cameras locate one bounce in and and do you do that cycle the entire season uh, yeah, I mean, I can give a quick story, and, it, and I think it'll work out perfect. It kind of has to do with the, the deer I was trying to kill last year and the deer I killed. Um, the deer that I was wanting to kill, I'd had him for two years. The first year, he was he was probably a booner. Um, last season, he was five and a half, I think, and he actually shrunk. Um, I think he was mid-60s, and he was, he was so just visible to all my cameras in the daylight basically i thought this is a once in a lifetime deal for me like i got a deer a big fully mature deer on public ground that is dumb and walks around in the daylight so i need to just try to kill him even with my limited time i thought i could do it because i had a pretty good idea where he was bedded not down to the bed but a pretty good idea and i knew exactly where he was feeding so I've been on him all summer, all through June, July, August, September, October. I mean, this this guy would, would come in and, and look right at my cameras, and I, I just felt like he was like, I'm right here, big boy. Where are you at? <laughs> That's the vibe he gave me. He's calling you out. <laughs> he really was. I couldn't believe it. But anyways, so my vacation rolls around. Um, Kentucky's modern gun season opens. This deer's running real close to the public, to the to the private ground, and I know he's hitting these private fields. So I hit up in there. I hit I hit my stand where my odds are the best. There's three cameras around me within 200 acres. He's on all of them in the daylight. I'm on a good ridge. I got a good crosswind, 
he should be here. If I sit here long enough, I'll at least see him. Probably, if not kill him. Man, he wasn't showing up. I gave it three days. I got, you know, check some more cameras. He wasn't on any of my cameras that he's been on for two years. And I knew right then, he's dead. Somebody killed him. I, re- I can I remember so vividly. I looked, got this camera out of this, out of this thicket. And I looked over in this field that was private. And I thought, he died there. He, that's where he died. So I was like, it's time, you know, it's time to stay positive, Josh. It's time to put the boots on the ground. It's time to burn some weather. So what did I do? I didn't care. As long as I wasn't going into bedding, I didn't care which way my wind was blowing. I didn't care what was going on. I was snatching some cards up. And, man, I the rest of that day, I checked like 13 cameras, something like that, and probably walked uh, 12 or 13 miles, never ran into a hunter. It was a good day. I had one buck. I'd had him, and I didn't know it because I, I hadn't checked my cameras. I'd had him in velvet. I'd had him hard horn. I'd had daylight pictures of him. And I was like, and then there were two or three others. And I got to look, and I was like, man, right here where this camera was, you know, is, is it, this buck can hit this ridge. He can circle this field uh, on a north wind and check this field without ever getting in it. And there's been multiple good deer, especially this deer, been running it. Like, I need to. I need to try to do this. And it looked like a good, solid three-year-old deer to me, probably low 130s. So I move in. I go in. I pass my buddy that I hunt with on the way out, and he is disgusted. Been hunting hard for a week and ain't seen nothing. And he's going home. This is noon. It's like, man, I'm just burnt out. And I told him, I said, man, I'm fixing to go back here and kill a deer. Sure you don't want to stay? And he's like, nah, I need to get home. I'm like, okay. I go back there. I sat seven feet off the ground in a tree that I could have done a square dance in. <laughs> Got a good crosswind, and I'm sitting up in there, and I've never hunted here in my life. I got a camera 20 yards below me that's had pictures of good deer, a couple good deer throughout the season. Never hunted it. I'm just feeling good, man. Have a little year and a half old buck come in, walks right past me. I'm, I'm like, man, this is, no, I'm feeling good. I look over and I kind of out of my eye, out of the corner of my eye, I see a little something nudge. And what it was, it was a buck. He, he tried to jump on her to, to mount her, and she kind of you know ran off. And uh, they were about 150 yards through the through the woods, and the woods was pretty open, but real steep terrain, about a third of the way down the ridge. And uh, the the chase is on. You know, I throw my binoculars up, and I instantly know. That's that split G2 buck I just got all these pictures of. I just checked these cameras, and he was on it yesterday. I'm shooting him. And he literally walked right past the exodus, literally. And you can almost see me in the corner of that picture. And I shoot him. And all that happened because I was on top of my game. I felt like the deer that I was wanting to kill, I just knew I had the sixth sense that he was dead. And I, I felt like that I needed to keep a positive attitude. I felt like that I could kill a good deer with the trad bow on public land. I just needed to do a little bit more work. And the reward was at the bottom of the ridge, deader than the doornail. Yeah. <laughs> the next day. Here's a, here's a question I have I, I'll ask you, and that is, 
do you think once the the grind starts, right? Once the rut hits and people are spending a lot of time in their tree stands, that they they spend too much time in the tree stand and not enough time, let's say, checking trail cameras or maybe doing some scouting to see where new sign pops up? Yep, I don't care if it's public or private land. If you got seven days to hunt, I feel like you need to be scouting half of them, if not more. Um, now, it just depends on how your property lays out, and that's one good thing about the public ground I hunt. You know, they see a lot of human activity, so I can get away with a lot more. Um, I just feel like you need to scout, man. Your, your season is going to reflect on your scouting. Right. You, know, you, you get you get you get back what you put in on anything in life and if you want to kill big deer or you want to kill good deer you want to reach your goals every year man you just you got to put in the work bottom line you got to put in the work everybody gets lucky but if you want to do it year after year after year you got to put in the work amen and that's a good end note, man, because uh, we're running up on time here. And Josh, I, I really appreciate you uh, sharing some knowledge with us, sharing some information with us, and uh, telling some stories. And uh, thanks for coming on and chatting today, man. Oh, yeah. It was good, man. I, I said this on one of the last ones I do. Anytime you can you can get together and talk big deer with you know with, with a buddy or, or a new guy, it's, it's a good day. And I've enjoyed it, man. I appreciate it. And there you have it. Huge shout out to Josh for taking time out of his schedule to come on, share that information with us, share those stories, and talk to us about public land, talk to us about deer hunting. There you go. Two of our favorite things, right? So huge shout out to Josh. Huge shout out to Exodus, Wasp, Lone Wolf, Deer Lab, Prime, Ripcord, Ozonics, and Hunter Safety Systems, man. Please go out and support those companies because they support this podcast. Huge shout out to my wife because right now she's out in the living room and she's basically having to Royal Rumble my three kids. And uh, yes, she's bigger than them, but man, my my kids throw low blows and like rake the eyes and like throw that powder, like the powder that you throw into their eyes and they go blind. They're cheap is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> so there's that. If you haven't already, social media guys, come on, that's where everything goes down. Facebook, Instagram, not only on the Sportsman's Nation, but also with Nine Finger Chronicles, spread the word, especially if you are a fan of of the nine finger chronicles you need to absorb all the content there's so much good information coming down this uh, the sportsman's nation tube and i think that's it man i'm gonna keep it short today happy monday get back to work i need a sound i need a sound uh, a sound machine where i can like have explosions and cracking whips and all that stuff okay i'm done now if you're going to be in a tree this week at some point, hanging trail cameras high up or hanging tree stands, trimming shooting lanes, the good friends, our good friends at Hunter Safety Systems are reminding you to please wear your damn safety harness. Have a good week.